Well, good morning. Welcome uh, online, or if you're joining us in person, thanks so much for being a part of Sailorville Church this morning. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm on the pastoral team here at Sailorville, and I love my job, and I love the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. We're wrapping up our series on the Ten Commandments in a message on the very last commandment, the tenth one, from Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. A few weeks ago, Meredith and I were uh, at lunch after church here on a Sunday morning, and we started up a conversation with our server. We told him we'd just come from church, and he asked, what was church about this morning? What was the message about? And we told him we were in a series on the Ten Commandments, and he kind of looked at us with sort of a funny look on his face, and he goes, the Ten Commandments? Why are you learning about the Ten Commandments in the year 2020? How is that relevant for today? It's a really good question, actually, and maybe it's a question that some of you have here this morning as well. What's the big deal with the Ten Commandments? Why are we still talking about these ancient laws? Can they still really be helpful in a day of global pandemic, of racial tension, of political chaos and economic confusion? Well, listen to this. When Jesus was asked to summarize all the laws of the Old Testament, and of course that would include the Ten Commandments, his simple answer was this, love God and love your neighbor. So the Ten Commandments are all about how to practically love God and love other people around us. And I can't honestly think of anything more relevant to talk about in this crazy day that we live in than love. How to love God and how to love people. I'm on video this morning because, like some of you, we've had exposure to the COVID virus over the last several days. Of course, we got tested. We were all negative. That's a great thing to wake up to in the morning, right? A COVID test. But we're staying away today so that we can be back together with you soon. So I've been preparing for this message while my family and I are in quarantine. Meredith's been working from home. I've been working from home. We're both trying to sort of tag team Judah as he's at home. We're, we're doing the homeschool thing. And by the way, while I'm talking about homeschooling, to all of you that have homeschooled for, for well, since before it was cool, thank you so much for your example. And to educators, private school, public school teachers, thank you so much for what you are doing with our children. You are a gift to our families, to our kids, and to our community. But we celebrated Judah's birthday uh, just a couple days ago, and he's turning seven, and so he made sort of the typical birthday wish list that seven-year-olds would make. He wanted a set of walkie-talkies for he and his buddies in the neighborhood. He wanted a new bike, and uh, well, like every seven-year-old, he wanted a new jet ski. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but we decided not to go with the jet ski and instead, we took him to an arcade. See, he's still at the age where he thinks dad and mom are semi-cool, and so we want to spend as much time making as many memories with him as possible. And honestly, folks, the arcade was amazing. I loved it. The lights were flashing and blinking. The music is thumping. I just loved my time with Meredith and Judah at the arcade. We played everything. We got all these tickets. Of course, now it's all digital. It's on like a little plastic arcade credit card kind of thing. And the best part of the whole arcade experience is when you go up at the end of when you spent all your money, played all the games, won all your tickets, you go up to the front desk and you see all the prizes and you trade your tickets in for one or more of these fantastic prizes that are lining the shelves and on the wall and under the glass cabinet there at the front desk. 
And so I got down on my hands and knees and I said, okay, buddy, this is what you want to get with all the tickets you have. On the top shelf, there's like the high dollar things like scooters and skateboards and little TVs and blenders, I guess, for dad and mom and other things like that. And then there's the sort of so-so middle of the range stuff like, uh, like footballs or basketballs or t-shirts or um, stuffed animals and things like that. And then under the glass cabinet there right in front of us is basically the junk, right? It's like a single Tootsie Roll or a piece of gum or these plastic little trinkets and kind of trash. And so I'm pointing this stuff out to Judah and I'm like, buddy, look at what you could get. You could get a skateboard with all that you have. And he's like, no, dad, I, I don't want a skateboard. I'm like, okay, well, how about a, how about a basketball or a t-shirt or a stuffed animal? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't really want anything like that. I'm like, but you could get something so cool and you could have something, you might already even own one, but you could have another one. You could have something better than what you even have at home. But he's fixated on these two little plastic pullback trucks. He goes, dad, I just want these two trucks right here. They're in the sort of the junk cabinet, right? The, the cabinet with the, the toys and the prizes that you, that you can get if you didn't win many games or if you didn't have many, much money, right? I'm like, buddy, you don't want that stuff. That's going to break before you even get home. And he says, Dad, but I, this is what I want. I really want these two trucks. So sure enough, we get in the car and one of them breaks. Now it's his seventh birthday and we get home and this is like my dad of the year moment, right? So I get, I get down right next to him. I look him in the eye and I said, buddy, I told you those were going to break. I knew as soon as you picked those out, one of them was going to break before we even got home. Now, I don't want to hear any complaining. You could have gotten something so much better. You could have had more. You deserved better than those two tiny little cheap plastic trucks. And he looked right back at me. Didn't even blink. He's looking me right in the eyes and he says, that's okay, Dad. You always say, be thankful for what you have instead of complaining about what you don't have. So I'm okay with the two trucks. Oh my goodness. On his birthday, that's my like dad of the year moment. I blew it. I failed so badly. And all of a sudden it hit me. The lesson he was teaching me. I, I'd been pushing him all along to get something bigger or better or brighter or something newer because he'd earned those tickets and he deserved to be happier. But it wasn't Judah that wanted those things. It was, it was me, to be honest with you. I was teaching him to want what he didn't need. I was teaching him to take what he deserved. I was teaching him to gather as much stuff as he can while he still could. You know, the Bible has a word for that, and it's found in our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment says this from the word of God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. Remember, the Israelites had been freed from Egypt. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They'd been led through the desert by pillars of fire and cloud. They'd been given water from a rock. Bread from the ground, meat in the form of quail from the air. And now they're at the foothills of Mount Sinai. And God speaks these words in the beginning of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall not covet. 
I think it sounds better in the old King James, right? Thou shalt not covet. <laughs> it's just fun to say it that way sometimes. What does that word covet mean? What does it mean to covet? It's not really a word that we use a lot nowadays, but it's not a concept that's foreign to our culture. It's not necessarily a negative word. In fact, it can be used very positively to mean um, I want something or to take pleasure in something or, or really just simply to enjoy something. Now, some of you know that I like, well, I like ice cream. And so almost every single night, I have at least one bowl of ice cream. And you might say that I covet super chunky cookie dough. That's not that bad of a thing, right? It can be used positive. But it's also, in this case, in the command, it's used in a negative way. It speaks of an exaggerated, an, an ungoverned, or, or unbridled kind of selfish desire. It's a sin of the heart, just like lust is a sin of the heart. It's a strong impulse or a passionate craving towards someone or something. And here's a great definition. To covet means this, to set your heart on someone or something that isn't yours. That's what it means to covet. And so there's examples all through the Bible of men and women who were infected with this disease of coveting. But let's just look at three examples from the Old Testament of coveting this morning. And we have to go back to where it all started, right? Our first dad and mom, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3. Read along with me in verse 1. Now the serpent, that's Satan, Lucifer, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? And the woman, Eve, says to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now watch what Satan the serpent does here. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and Adam ate as well. Adam and Eve, they're, they're ground zero for the sin of all humankind. This is the virus that still infects each one of us, traced back to one man and one woman in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were living in a perfect world. Not just a really great world, not just a really, really great world, but a perfect world. And yet, they weren't content with all that God had showered on them. They wanted. They desired. In fact, they coveted after God-like wisdom. And so when Satan the serpent tells them that they can become like God by eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve sees it, that's the look, she wanted it, that's the desire, she took it, that's the action, and then she gave it to Adam, that's the spread of the virus or the sin of covetousness. And friends, there, there's a lie at the heart of every step that we take away from God. And here's the lie that Adam and Eve believed in this instance. If God really loves me, he'll give me what I want. If God really loves me, then he'll give me what I want. That's at the core of Adam and Eve's covetous desire. 
They craved something that God said wasn't theirs to have. And, and then they believed a lie that God was withholding something really good from them. If God really loves us, he'll give us what we want, won't he? Have you seen this lie in your life? You know, there have been times when I've believed this lie. When Meredith and I got married, we had a plan. We, we were going to finish up seminary. I was going to get my master's degree. Meredith was going to continue to work full time. And she was going to pay off some bills. And we were going to take care of our student loans and debt and some of those types of things. And, and that was just going to last a few years because then we were going to start having kids. And we were going to raise them in a family that loves Jesus. Because after all, isn't that what God would want for us? But we didn't have kids. And for 10 years, we tried to, and we were going through all kinds of medications and treatments, and we went from one special doctor to another special doctor, and one hospital to another, and we got pregnant, and we're losing babies, and, and then we were watching others have kids that we, we didn't think had any business bringing new life into this world, to be honest with you. In fact, it seemed like everybody around us was having babies. God was giving them the very thing that we so badly wanted. I can remember pretty vividly the moment when I asked the question. There was a single girl from our youth group that got pregnant by her boyfriend who was in jail at the time. And, and I remember looking at Meredith in, in confusion and, um, and despair. And to be honest, in, in selfishness and pain and saying, if God really loves us, why is he giving other people the very thing that we want so badly? Does God even care about us? <laughs> what I had forgotten in that moment is that God loves us so much that sometimes he, he actually keeps things from us. Maybe we're not ready to have that thing yet. That, that was probably true in our lives. Maybe we think that that thing will be good for us, but God knows that it won't be good for us. Or maybe we crave that thing so badly that if we ever got it, it would take the place of God in our lives. And God's not going to give us anything that will take the place of Him in our lives. Maybe you've believed the lie that Adam and Eve believed and that I've believed at times that's at the heart of coveting. If God really loves me, He'll give me what I want. There's another character in the Old Testament I want to look at this morning with you, and it's a man by the name of Achan. Achan. It's several years after God gave Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments at this part in the Bible, and, and Moses has died, and, and Joshua is now leading the people into the Promised Land. They've just defeated Jericho. Well, better yet, God defeated Jericho in a great and mighty way. Go back and read the story. It's incredible. And so Joshua has his sights with his soldiers on this tiny little town called Ai up in the hills. And he doesn't even send all of his warriors up there. He just sends a couple thousand. And they have a humiliating defeat. And Joshua cries out to God and says, God, why? Why were you faithful to us at the battle of Jericho and not at the battle of this tiny little town called Ai? God says, get up. Israel has sinned. The people have disobeyed me. I told you not to take any of the spoils from the battle at Jericho, and yet someone did. The people disobeyed God, and God can't bless disobedience. So Joshua confronts the people of Israel about their sin, and he eventually narrows it down to a, to a tribe, and then to a family, and then to a household, and then to the man called Achan. And he looks at Achan in the eye, and he says, Achan, we just got destroyed by the tiny army 
of Ai. Real men died out there. Achan, what have you done to sin against the Lord? And Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, answers Joshua and says this, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak, cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I, and here's our word, coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent and the silver is buried underneath. The end of the story is that Achan and his whole family, all of his cattle, all of his livestock, all his belongings, his tent and everything that he had were all gathered into the middle of the congregation of the people of Israel and they were killed and then burned and then buried. Everything. Here's another lie that our coveting tells us. Just a little sin won't hurt anybody. Just a little sin won't hurt anybody. Achan, like Eve and, and Adam before him, wasn't satisfied. He saw something that wasn't his. He wanted it. He took it. And then that sin infected the rest of his family and others around him. We're only one covetous look away from sliding down that slippery slope that leads to an infected life. Our own destroyed life, or maybe even someone else's. Maybe you're thinking right now of an example of a, of a time in your life when your sin impacted people around you. And maybe you can't think of an example when you sinned and, and someone else was impacted by it. Several years ago, someone challenged me to make a list of all the people that were important to me. Actually, physically write them down. And those would be the people that were impacted by my sin if I ever chose to take a step away from God in a major way. And I'm going to challenge you on camera here and in front of me this, this morning. Make a list of all the people that are important to you. And the next time you're tempted to take a step away from God, to sin, to intentionally do wrong, to covet something, take out that list. And realize again that those are the people that are impacted by your sin. No one sins in a vacuum. I've had several conversations with men in this church over the last few years who, who've all come to me with the same symptoms. They drifted far away from God in their, in their personal relationship with Him. They let their, what we call spiritual disciplines, they'd let it slip. In some ways, they'd let them completely dissolve their Bible reading, sometimes non-existent. Did not have a close prayer life with God. Uh, the communication between them and God was very, very limited. Not fasting at all. Not putting aside things in order to focus and, and concentrate on their relationship with Jesus. And not really intentionally becoming more like Jesus at all. These guys, all the same. Their marriages were struggling. Their wives had essentially become roommates. They were running the kids back and forth to school and to sports and to dance and to hobbies and friends and even church activities because, quote-unquote, that's what every parent does, isn't it? Each one of them told me that they wished that things were like they used to be. And when I asked each one of these guys what changed, every single one of them said this to me. I wanted more. I wanted more. I, I had a decent bank account. I just wanted more money. 
I had a good job. I just wanted to keep climbing the ladder. Our house was fine. We just wanted to move into a bigger one or a newer one or a better one. We took great vacations, but we wanted more expensive ones. And in some tragic cases, these men looked at me and said, I've, I've gotten tired of my wife. I just want a different one. Men, women, teenagers, don't buy the lie that just a little sin doesn't hurt anybody. Your family and the people around you are paying the price for your coveting heart. Our sin impacts our relationship with God and with other people. My goodness, our sin impacts other people. But if we address and confess and eradicate covetousness at the heart level, right where it starts, then maybe we can avoid the serious consequences that this virus has on our lives and on the lives of those around us. Let's look at one more character from the Old Testament. It's a familiar character. His name is David, King David, and the story of David's life may be familiar to you. In fact, Pastor Pat referenced a famous part of David's story a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning, but here it is again from 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David, on the other hand, remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba? She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here's a quick review of the story. It happens in the springtime when, when King David, as the commander-in-chief, should have been with his soldiers on the battlefield. But instead, he's sent everybody away. He's isolated himself. There's zero accountability here. No community around him. Nobody to pump the brakes when he's making a mistake. No one to challenge him. And he's sitting on his couch. But let's be honest, you can only sit on your couch alone for so long. And so he goes up to the palace rooftop to check out his vast kingdom. And he's just staring at everything that is his. He doesn't just see Bathsheba and look away, though. He takes a second glance at this beautiful woman, and, and then a third glance, and a fourth, and, and more. And then he gets curious. And long story short, David sees Bathsheba. He wants her. He takes her for himself and then ultimately suffers the consequences of a sin when God takes the life of their newborn son. King David, overlooking his kingdom, believed a lie that so many of us believe. I deserve more. I deserve more. I'm the king, David could have said in his heart. Look at how hard I work. Look at everything I do. Look at how long I've waited. I was little shepherd boy David, and now I'm king David. Surely I deserve to be satisfied. I have a right to be happy. Don't I deserve more? That's a lie. But let's face it, the world instills in us this attitude. You need it. You have a right to it. You deserve it. But friends, can I just say this? As followers of Jesus, that kind of attitude should make us sick. I have a right 
to be happy so I'm going to take what I want. I deserve more than what I'm getting so, I can, so I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. Or my comfort is really what's most important here so I don't really care how it impacts you. Friends, that's no good. Christians should be the first to put aside our own comforts and our quote-unquote rights for the sake of loving others. In fact, as far as I can tell, the Bible doesn't focus much on the rights that we have as Christ followers. In fact, as sinners, the only thing we deserve, the only right that we have that I can find in the Bible is an eternity in hell without Jesus. The wages... That could be translated the rights or the things that we deserve, what we've earned. The wages of sin is death. How much better would our world be right now if we stopped believing the lie that we deserve more and it's our right to take it? (laughs) So we've got a problem. We've been conditioned and trained and molded by almost everything around us to search for satisfaction in things that don't last. To constantly crave something better. To take what we think we deserve, even if it's not ours. In the words of Moses, to covet our neighbor's house. To covet his wife, his employees, or his possessions. To covet anything that isn't ours. In the Old Testament, God was calling His people, the Israelites, to live lives that were marked as different. They were to be set apart. They were to be a community that was pursuing something, or better yet, someone that was higher than just themselves. And that's what He's still calling His people to today. If you're a follower of Jesus... If you're someone who's genuinely trying to follow in the way of Christ, you're trying to apprentice Jesus in a sense, and that's a true Christian, then there is hope for you. There's a way out of this constant cycle of craving what isn't yours, of demanding what God hasn't given to you, or of finding your heart's treasure in the trinkets and trash of what this world has to offer. There is a cure. And that is the practice of contentment. The practice of contentment. You know, if you've been around our church for a little while, you've heard us talk about our mission. The very core of who we are is this. We want to be a church that makes more people more like Jesus. So we're compelled and convicted and driven by this to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did and to obey the words that he taught. So what does Jesus say about this virus of covetousness and the cure of contentment. Here's what Jesus says about the cure for a coveting heart. Let's look quickly at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, rather, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus responds to him and says, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all, here's our word, covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Did you catch that? Your identity is not in what you have, Jesus says. You know, he could have been talking to us today in the year 2020, right? The average American, that's where we live. The average American home has over 300,000 individual items in it. Can you imagine trying to do an insurance inventory with 300,000 items in your house? That's a lot of stuff. 
We consume and discard and replace more than double what we did just 50 years ago. In fact, our average home is more than triple the size of what it was 50 years ago. 32% of those of us with two-car garages don't even have enough room in our garage for our cars. (laughs) Actually, one study found that We have enough room in storage facilities in our country to sleep every single American comfortably. In other words, we've got enough square footage in the storage facilities in America that every single human American could have a little tiny bedroom. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of storage. That's a lot of storage to keep all of our stuff. But here's the point. Coveting finds our identity in what we have. Contentment finds our identity in whose we are. See, Jesus says we need to guard against covetousness, that insatiable lust to be identified by our stuff. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then later on in this story, in verse 34, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Of course our hearts are wrapped up in our stuff. We have so much of it. So where's your treasure? Is your treasure in your garage? That's where your heart will be. Is your treasure in your bank account? That's what you'll be drawn to all the time. Is your treasure in your retirement account? That's what you'll be checking all the time to make sure it's still doing all right. Is your treasure in your closet, in your clothes? And I was going to be real smooth here this morning. I was conducting a sort of a secret experiment over the last month or so. I knew I was going to be preaching on coveting and contentment, and so I was trying to wear the same three t-shirts over and over. Just rotate them through. Just so I could stand up in front of you and say, See, I don't have the idol of clothing. I've been wearing these same three t-shirts and this one pair of jeans for the last three weeks. <laughs> but one day I came home and there was a package on the, uh, on the counter And I said, hey, babe, what's this? And she goes, oh, that's for you. Well, I opened it up, and inside was this shirt, actually. I said, what's this, a new shirt? And she goes, yeah, I noticed you've been wearing the same T-shirts over and over and over again, and nobody should have to do that. So here's a brand new shirt. (laughs) So I was foiled. I'm standing in front of you this morning with a brand new shirt on. But listen, we can covet clothing. We can idolize our closet. When we put anything between us and God, that has become an idol. But that's not the Jesus way. The Bible teaches that your identity shouldn't be in what you have, it should be in whose you are. Paul in in Ephesians chapter 1 says, as a child of God, now catch all this, verse 3, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, you're chosen in Jesus before the world was made. This is your identity. Verse 5, you're loved, predestined. You've been adopted with every single privilege of biological children. Verse 6, Jesus has poured out his grace on us. Verse 7, we've been redeemed and forgiven and graced again. Verse 11, we have an inheritance, something undeserved that was given to us by someone who sacrificed for us. Verse 13, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our identity in Jesus forever. Christ follower, this is your identity. Your identity is found in Jesus, not in your stuff. Coveting finds our identity in what we have. Contentment finds our identity in whose we are. Here's another teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus says, Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles, the people that don't, need, know, that don't know Jesus, seek after all these things. And, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. See, Jesus says, when, when I'm chasing down my own dreams, when I'm spending money on my own wants, when my mind is consumed with the things that I think I deserve, when I'm putting myself first, Jesus says two things happen in this passage. Number one, I get anxious. I start to worry. I question whether God is going to provide for me because now it's out of my control. I don't know what's going to happen, so I worry. And number two, as a result of that, I, I live as though I don't know Jesus. I live like the Gentiles. Jesus says the Gentiles do those things. Why do I need to do that if I'm a Christ follower? One of our core value statements here at Sailorville says this about generosity. God owns everything, so I will invest for eternity what he's given me temporarily. Very simply, we give what matters to what matters. When I invest in eternity into God's kingdom here and around the world, God grows his kingdom and then he supplies everything I need also. Isn't that amazing? In God's economy, when I give to the kingdom, he meets my needs. See, coveting invests in the temporary. Contentment invests in eternity. There's one more word on contentment, this time from the Apostle Paul this morning in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for, here it is, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, Paul says, and I know how to abound in every and any circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. And then that famous verse that we have tattooed on our forearms or underneath our eyes at JV football practice, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In the early 1600s, a Puritan preacher and author, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote what would become one of the great classic books of the Christian faith. He called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Isn't that cool? In it, Burroughs defines contentment like this. It's, it's the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious heart condition that freely submits, submits to God and delights in God in every condition. Wow, that's so good. Paul said it this way, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And remember, Paul is, is writing this in a Roman prison with not a possession to his name. He's chained to a rotating guard of Roman soldiers. Let those words in every circumstance, let those words sink in. What kind of circumstance are you in right now? Paul doesn't base his contentment on his circumstances, on what he has or what he doesn't have, or, or on his freedom or on his rights. He says, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to be content. Coveting says, I want more. Contentment says, I have all I need in Jesus. I have all I need in Jesus. So how do we practice this way of Jesus in 
contentment? How do we live out this value, virtue of contentment? Number one, remember what you have in the gospel. Remember what you have in the gospel. When you're focusing on the gospel, it's hard to covet something else. Number two, live on mission by telling others about Jesus in normal conversations. Live on mission. When you make it about Jesus, it's hard to make it about yourself. Talk to other people about what Jesus has done in your life. Number three, wake up each day with a posture of worship instead of worry. When you point to Jesus in everything that we do, when you, that you do, when you yield to him, when you surrender to him, you can be content instead of finding your satisfaction in your anxiety and your worry. Number four, share close community with people who love you enough to challenge you. Are you in a cell group? Are you in a group of people that challenge you, that love you, and that share with you? That can lead to true contentment. Number five, put the needs of others first by serving them. (laughs) When it's not about you and it's about other people, you're a long way toward that path of contentment. When you put the needs of others first, you make it about somebody else. It's so much easier to be content in a situation like that. And then number six, be generous. When you invest money in God's kingdom, your heart will follow. Before you buy something, before you click submit, before you go to Target and go through the register, just ask this question, why? Why am I buying this? Why am I spending money on this? Am I being generous? Am I investing in God's kingdom or in my own kingdom? And then number seven, focus on progress, not perfection. Obedience happens one step at a time. You can be content in this. God wants your obedience. Little steps lead to huge changes over time. Find contentment in obedience. Friends, I I failed. I failed at the arcade. I failed after the arcade, but I'm learning a really good lesson and I'm still trying to learn it. Contentment is the cure for the coveting heart. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that amazing? This, by the way, is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected for our sins, for our satisfaction, for our very lives to be given back to him in an act of worship. Jesus wants to be our fulfillment, what we pursue. He wants to be that which captures our heart's affections. Does God really love me? Yes. And he loves you too. He's given you everything you need in Jesus. You don't need more because God is enough. Come to Jesus this morning. Give him your everything and let him be your everything. Everybody has tickets to trade in. Don't try to buy happiness with bigger or better or more stuff. You need a Savior. Only with a Savior will you be satisfied. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus 
to be our satisfaction, to fulfill our greatest needs so that we might have a Savior and not pursue stuff. Help us, Lord, to eradicate that coveting heart and to find our contentment in you. Thank you, Lord, for promising that fulfilled and abundant life through your Son, Jesus. In your name, amen.